welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and me, radio host Emily Reese. On this episode of Scores and Pours, we are going to talk about you thought you knew. Yep. We're going to take some things you definitely will recognize, the introductory form of what we talk about, but we're going to get deeper and show you some sides of what you thought you knew. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Here I go again. It's only the intro. Emily Reese, you thought you knew about Raisin. And you thought you knew music from the opera Carmen. La, 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 la. La 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 so la 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 Seriously, some of the best entrance music for any characters in all of opera. I mean, there's lots of great examples, but there are two really great examples of entrance arias or entrance songs in this opera. And they're super famous, but that's not even what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the stuff you don't know from Carmen. And I bet if I told you right now, Emily, we're going to talk about Riesling, you'd say, oh, I guess we're flying to... Germany. No. I mean, we'll touch on that, but we're going to yeah. go deeper, obviously, into Carmen, into Riesling, and what else? Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. Which you all think you know. Yeah. And by the way, I brought up the sheet music for that and tried to learn some of it because it's so kind of, it sounds like it's easy, and part of it is sort of easy if you read music until you figure out the fingerings and you're like, Beethoven's such a badass, it's insane. <laughs> but we're not even going to really talk about the first movement right? anyway. I know. Amazing. Um, well, do you want to, we were talking about how we're, we're starting late today. We had, a, one of us had an engagement, earlier engagement, so we're recording a little late. And so we're both like, oh my gosh, it's 2.45 on a Monday. We have the shakes. Let's start <laughs> drinking wine earlier. Just kidding. Let's just start now. Okay. <laughs> We usually have a little preamble before we get into the wine, but we figured today, uh, let's just get straight to the... Tasting. Yeah. Well, I will divulge that we're tasting California Riesling, but I won't tell you what we're tasting, all of you listening. Emily can see the label. I can. And cheers to Scores and Pours. Cheers. What do you smell? I smell lemons and rocks. Mm, I love that. Do you smell what people in the industry call petrol? And it's not like you're at a gas station, don't. but you smell like something that's kind of like natural gassy or something, propane-y. Oh, okay. Maybe a little. And so that's a very typical compound of Riesling um, that can come out in certain places. And we'll get more into what terpenes are and how this wine is so terpene-rich. Neat. In a moment. Terpene. Yeah. What are we going to listen to today? Let's, let's, can we get into one or the other? Let's yeah, just go back. Let's I guess, just, oh, wait, why does this taste this? Well, We're like, yeah. let's drink. And then I said, we get past the smell and I'm like, all right, let's go. Let's listen to some music. <laughs> wow, Jill, be present. Be present. Okay. All right. Wow. Well, that should have happened two hours ago. <laughs> I just, I'm, show, I'm a, like a, what is it called? A referee in a football game and the field goal is good. Yes. I've got my hands up perpendicular <laughs> to the ground. Saying yep. it's very high in acid. Yeah. Like, and my mouth is salivating mm-hmm, from here to mm-hmm, Texas. Mm-hmm. It's it light. lingers. It yeah. lingers. The finish is really nice on it. I could probably put that bottle away in an hour by myself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> what is the, the tip of the tongue? Is there some sweetness? Just the little tiniest bit. To me, there's not. To me, there's, it's fruity. 
It's very oh, fruity. Oh, okay, okay. Um, but it's definitely, there's no like residual sugar on the tip of the tongue. It's actually, hmm. there's less than I think a gram per liter of residual sugar. And in order to start to be past dry, yeah. we need to be at six grams per liter Whoa. to start talking about off dry stuff Damn. in general. Um, I better give it another taste. Yeah, I guess I might as well, as you're tasting, I might as well start with mm-hmm. why I'm, I'm infatuated with this grape. I have been for well over... 15 years. And the reason I wanted to speak about it today is, you know, they're over, this is a few years old, the statistic, but there are over 125,000 acres dedicated to Riesling in the world. And Germany is, has about 50% of those, of Mm -hmm. the acreage is dedicated of Riesling Mm -hmm. in the world is, hails from Germany. Wow, that was really a poorly strung together sentence. Thanks (laughs) for following me, everyone. California only represents a very small percentage, so about four to 5,000 acres. And the reason why you were like, oh, I'm gonna, let's go to Ger- Germany. That's where we're going. Germany has had a history of growing Riesling since the 1400s, 15th century. There, and, and written records saying, you know, these vine cuttings of the Riesling grape cost this much money. And so, so we know that Riesling was very popular. And so if, if it was planted... When we and people were making wine out of it in the 1500s, we know that it was happening long before that. Sure. And the reason that most folks think about Germany right away, and rightfully so, is not only quantity and that it's it's the most terroir-driven area for Riesling is Germany. Is Germany has five to six hundred years that we don't have here in California or in the United States and Oregon. Moldova has a lot of Riesling. They haven't had Riesling as long as the Germans. (laughs) Another reason why it's interesting to talk about this grape and all over the world what it can do is it's extremely terpene rich, which what that's a, it's a family of chemical compounds that are aromatic and all grapes have terpenes, but Riesling has an incredible concentration of them in the skins, and also it's got a very diverse set of terpenes. And so what that means is, depending on where you're planting it, how you're taking care of it in the vineyard, and then subsequently in the cellar, there's going to be a lot of different places that those aromatics can show, can rear their heads, can show themselves, right? Those terpenes deal with the environment, they deal with pH, and so it's very easy when you start, Riesling smells very different Hmm. from that row to that row to that row, and, you know, then now we even get country to country or region to region, and it's very different, right? Soil to to soil, more so in my mind, even than Burgundy. Burgundy is very textural, so is Riesling, but Riesling, it even bleeds into the aromatics in a way that is, like, exponentially more noticeable. Than say um, Burgundy would be. Yeah. So Pinot for Noir you, Chardonnay. so you could have you know a German Riesling, a Californian Riesling, Riesling in front of you, and they're just you just wouldn't even have to think. You'd just smell them both and know. Correct. I and mean, you're like that with. I guess it's safe to say you're like that with all the wines. That's why you do what you do. But I mean, it's just a, it's it's really easy with those, huh? It is, and also you can tell who is who likes Riesling and is very influenced by either. German wines or German wine making, or those who love Riesling and they're trying to make Riesling like they're making Chardonnay or okay. like they're making Sauvignon Blanc, you know. So they're, and these people that were drinking their wines, I'll talk about them in a bit. They are 
obsessed with Riesling, so much so that on their website, they have about philosophy and why Riesling. So, which is pretty great. Neat. What's music? Carmen is an opera by a French composer, Georges Bizet. Tragically short life, 36 years old when he died. He lived from 1838 to 1875. Carmen was premiered in 1875. He died in the middle of its run. There were like 33 performances of it, and he died. Some, some kind of heart disease, heart problems. Who knows? It was 1875. Um, Heavy smoker. Right. He was he a heavy smoker, so. yeah. And he would always complain about throat problems. Hmm. You know, it, just reading about it made me think of like the times where I've had heartburn that made me think I was dying. <laughs> but who knows? It could have been something completely different. In any event, Carmen, an opera in four acts. It's called an opera comique, which means that it's got talking. So it's a comic opera with l- literal talking in between musical numbers. And uh, it was based off of a book called Carmen. And just let's just listen to a couple of the tunes that you've probably heard from Carmen, and then we'll hear a couple that you haven't. So this one is what you hear the very first time Carmen, who's the female lead, walks out onto stage, and it's super sexy and sultry. She's a gypsy kind of trying to woo men and kind of mess with their brains a little bit. And she walks out on stage to the habanera. And we'll include a link to an amazing performance of this woman who just, yes, just, it's so cool. Just the way that this can be portrayed in the right, because I've had, I have a friend who's an opera singer who has told me, you got to see this specific person online. Yes. So sultry. So that's the habanera. One thing about this I want to mention before you go on to the next, like, very famous tune. Yeah. Is, you know, when you hear that, if you know Carmen, you immediately think of Bizet. Bizet wrote this. Mm -hmm. It actually was written by a Basque slash Spanish, obviously Basque before you're Spanish, composer by the name of Sebastián Irradier Salaberry. And he died in obscurity in Vitoria. He's got kind of an interesting history, but you can't, really, you don't really know a lot about him, especially during his life. But he wrote something called El Arreglito, which is basically, if you YouTube that, you'll hear his composition in Spanish, and it's <laughs> basically this tune. Yeah, it's this tune, yeah. which is really cool to know. But Bizet found that out, right? Yeah, he. So well, he, he knew anyway. Yeah, but, so he yeah. he found he thought that. Thanks for pointing that out. He thought that it was like a folklore tune, so he kind of re- reworked it a touch, but it's basically in its original form. And then he found out. Oh wait, this composer that was I th- I think at the time was still living. He was like, oh, I want to quote him, and I want to say that Salaberry wrote this. So he he gave him he credit. Attribute, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, 
That's good. So another thing that's super famous from Carmen is just how it starts, right? So you probably have heard this in a commercial. This is how the whole opera comes to a crashing beginning, really. We're really only going to listen to one second because you're going to know right away what it is. Yeah. It sounds like every mid-morning when I realize I'm late to everything. Yes. That's what it sounds like in my apartment. (laughs) So... uh, those are some well-known tunes from Carmen. Let's hear two that are lesser known and just delightful examples of Bizet's ability to write for instruments and voice. So one of the instrumental ones I want you to hear happens between Act 1 and Act 2. So this is the music that connects Act 1 and Act 2, and it's purely instrumental. And there is a beautiful bassoon solo in here, so let's hear it. So a friend told me today, we were talking, and he's like, well, maybe you'll be a tree in your next life, Jill, or in 10 lives. And I was like, hopefully people will be dumping rum (laughs) for their ancestors on my roots. It's a whole other story. But maybe in my life before I become a tree, I'll just be a bassoon player. Yeah. You'll get lots of scholarship money. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, one of the interesting things about Carmen, because Bizet died not long after the premiere and all of that, he wasn't really done with the score. So there are three different versions of the score that Bizet compiled before he died. And, you know, one would assume that at some point he'd go through it all and make a definitive version and be like, this is how I want this opera to be. But he never did that. And so there are lots of different versions out there. Well, and then one could also argue that. Even if he got to that point, who's to say then 20 years later he wouldn't have this premonition and be like, oh my God, I had to rewrite that. Exactly. We'll never know. We'll never know. One more tune from Carmen. This includes the male lead, Jose. And this is also when you meet one of the other female characters, Michaela. And this is right away in the first act. And I just, I love the combination of instruments and voice in this uh, tune. This is... um, Uh, Act one, the very second piece, and it's in French, so I'm just going to play it for you rather than tell you what it is. Okay, so can I can I say? Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, because when you said, oh, yeah, one of these Rieslings has some sweetness. Mm -hmm. I'm like, no, it doesn't. Mm. Okay, so this sounds so, like, lyrical and very, like, you have this up-tempos, low-tempos, fortissimo, pianissimo. You have, like, these dynamics that are so of the romantic era is that, like, we are 
Okay. We are smack dab in the romantic era. Yeah. Very much so. Okay. Um, we're almost out of it by the time this, I mean... Becomes famous. Yeah. It's good stuff. Romantic era. Yeah. If you want to hear Carmen music and you don't want to listen to a two hour and 45 minute opera or whatever it is, there are orchestral suites. So someone, after Bizet died, a good friend of Bizet's actually, took that music and just arranged it for orchestra. So it's all still Bizet's music. Just his friend Ernest kind of helped get it into an orchestral setting so, so that people could get to know the music without having to go to the opera. So there you go. Shall we Riesling? Yes, please. I wanted to talk about West Coast Riesling, and in particular California, because during the gold rush in the 1830s, you know, middle part of that century, 1800s, you had a lot of people coming and trying to strike it rich with gold, and there's only so much gold and only so much time. People needed to start working in other sectors, and obviously California had a rich availability of agricultural spaces and the ability not only to plant, but then to sell and distribute. And there was a, um, I think he was Hungarian, an immigrant. His name is Augustin Harazdi. And he came over um, in like the 18, well, he came over on and off. But in the 1850s, he brought over 100,000 different vine cuttings with him. And one of those was of Vitis vinifera, different clones of Vitis vinifera, obviously. And one of those was Riesling in 1852. And that's where we see, because up until then, it was basically only the mission grape or wild grapes, only the mission grape that was brought up by missionaries from Baja California, right? And planted Mm -hmm. all over the West Coast. Riesling works in a lot of different places. Why does it work in Germany and why does it work in California? It's drought resistant. It can handle, it loves a long growing season, which obviously California has that. It's somewhat winter tolerant. So if you are going to plant it in cooler places, mountainsides, et cetera, in in California, it's going to probably farewell. It is somewhat heat tolerant. You got to be careful because Riesling can, it can get almost too phenolic and, and, and lose a little bit of acidity. But the fact that it has a lot of acidity, if it is going to be a warmer place, you're still going to have that to keep a, keep a balanced wine. And it ripens late. Fast forward to today, um, there are a lot of people growing Riesling. Like I said, there are about four to 5,000 acres in California. I brought with me two wines. They're the same wine, Mm-hmm. But the only difference is the vintage. And I wanted to thank the folks at Libation for providing us with these awesome wines to be able to showcase Libation Project, who they bring in Sturm wines here to the Minneapolis market. And Sturm, there's a guy, his name is Ryan Sturm. He's worked all over the world for wine, and he loves Riesling. When you look on his website, he actually talks a lot about terpenes and how okay. you know, he talks about his history with Riesling, why he loves it so much. But this wine is... The Riesling is planted to a vineyard called Kick-On Vineyard. Sometimes they call it Kick-On Ranch. That is, we're in Santa Barbara County, so we're um, north of Los Angeles. We're kind of around the area of of Paso Robles, a little bit south, and we're only 10 miles away from the ocean. So you get a lot of cool breezes, but we're in the foothills of the Purisima Hills, the pure hills, as it were. (laughs) And here you have plenty of sunshine, but then you have those cool, moderating Pacific Ocean breezes. And so this is it's like a perfect place for Riesling. A lot of alluvial, kind of pebbly soils here, which can 
give a really smooth texture and I think not allow, you know, in Germany, the main beautiful soil that everybody loves is all these different kinds of slate, right? And yeah, there's sandstone and there are other soils too, but slate really is is the one that most people can answer. Um, and in supposedly you can smell slate in German Rieslings. We've talked about that on an episode before. Here, you don't have that slate component, so you're kind of with a different canvas, a different lens, if you will. So I brought the 2017 and the 2018 vintage. 2017 is 0.3% higher alcohol. Ooh. So it's a little bit warmer, okay. perhaps. But yeah, let's just give it a let's just give it a smell. Okay. Right away, let's look at the color. So we're looking at the 2017 and 18. And the, I mean, I can't really tell a huge difference in color. Mm -hmm. Um from no. where I'm sitting, can you? Not particular. No, not really. So let's taste the 2017 first. This is the one that, like I said, is a little bit maybe a perhaps a warmer vintage. It's mm -hmm. um, got 12.9 percent alcohol. And then let's taste the 2018, which has a little bit less alcohol, 12.6. Ooh, zippy. You'll notice it kind of tastes like. Race a little racier, unbelievable. Um, a lot of times when you have a, a slightly cooler year, less alcohol, a, a quote unquote, we'll say a higher pH or mm -hmm. excuse me, a lower pH, if you will, so higher acidity. Yeah, it seems like zippier. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to 2017. You want to? Yeah. Now it's really easy to denote that being warmer. It's richer. It's yeah, and and not by much, right? If you were to have it, right. if you were to have the twenty seventeen, and if you were to have that like three weeks before you had the twenty eighteen, mm -hmm. stuff like that could go past you, right? I mean, yeah. they, they might go past me, yeah. But having them side by side is just so it's incredible. And here is where I think, you know, we're taking riesling, we're planting it halfway across the world to not necessarily old vines. These aren't. 100-year-old Riesling vines or anything. Yeah. They're farmed. He's trying to convert over to organic with each vintage. It's more and more. But Ryan Sturm is doing um, only native yeast fermentations. He's actually doing about 48 hours on the skins to give it, because he, he wants that terpene-rich environment of those skins to give something to the must, right? Yeah. And if you were to just quick to press, you'd get a little bit of that, but you're getting more, just a few days on the skins. And then it's all in stainless steel. Um, he's... Only adding a little bit of sulfur before bottling so it can coalesce well, um, but it's unfined and unfiltered, which is very rare for a Riesling if you consider Riesling the world the world over. Hmm. Um, you want to go back to the 2018? Yeah. Cool. The 17, like the 2018 almost is like fizzier, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's, and, the, that's the acidity that yeah. you're referring to. It's like zippier. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that's like richer, riper. That twenty seven or the twenty seventeen. Yep. Oh, that's so cool. It loses a little zip when it warms up. They they lose a little zip when they, but they also I think they become more transparent. Like if we just pulled these straight away from the fridge and yeah, cracked them open, you would get that. But do you notice how in the warmer vintage, the twenty seventeen, the aromatics are more kind of robust. They're quote unquote. I don't want to say as far as to say they're more tropical, mm. but they're a little bit less mineral. They're yeah. a little bit more kind of like what we would consider riper fruit, slightly mm -hmm. not bruised, but like in that direction. Yeah. Whereas the 2018 is a little bit more like just slightly less ripe fruit. Yeah. Mm. 
Mm. Delicious. And Sturm is a producer that I I want to focus on. And there are there are a few more like him out there in California that are doing very terroir-driven, like showing what's possible, showing that Riesling can showcase vintage, can yeah. showcase soil. He's got a different vineyard called Wurtz Vineyard or with a W, Wurtz Vineyard, something like that, Wurtz. And when you taste that next to Kick-On, and the soils are different, next to Kick-On Vineyard, they're just like night and day different. I mean, mm. vintage gets really, when you're doing a 17 and 18 from the same vineyard, obviously you and I tasting them here, we get it. But like I said, they're really finite. Those differences are really like keen and delicate, but you get two different vineyards and it's like almost could be two different producers and Incredible. Riesling really has the power to do that, which makes me really happy. <laughs> I'm going to just drink some while you talk about the next, uh, do it. the next Sonata. Which one do you want? Do you want some in your glass? Um, give me that 18 again. I know you're not going to be able to be drinking it when you're talking about the yeah. Moonlight Sonata, but Hell, the first movement's really sounds, I know some people think, oh, moonlight, oh, romantic. I think it's flipping depressing sounding anyway, so I'm going to go for the 18 as well because it's a little (laughs) bit more zip. Yep. We'll just listen to the beginning of Moonlight Sonata, the first movement, just so you know, because you'll know it, right? So here it is. This is the Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven, written right around the year 1800, 1801, his opus 27, number two. Uh, Oftentimes, not all the time, Beethoven released his sonatas in sets, and so this was a set of two that he sent to the publisher, opus 27, numbers one and two. Number one is in E-flat. This is C-sharp minor. It's very depressing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, It's very beautiful. He did not call it Moonlight Sonata, that was a posthumous nickname given like 20 years after he died or something like that. So it wasn't like Beethoven was sitting outside Germany on a, or Vienna uh, on, a, on a beautiful summer night seeing the moon. It was, had nothing to do with that. Can I say what it's called? Because I, yes, I like to pronounce it. Important. It's fun. Sonata quasi una fantasia. Yep. Yes. Quasi una fantasia, like a fantasy or fantasy-like. And what fantasy in music means is we're not conforming to form. We're not... Oh, I'm glad you brought this up. Yes, it's yes. very important. It's very significant for both of these sonatas, both Opus 27 sonatas. They didn't start like all sonatas tend to start, which is with... Uh, Fast movement, okay, there are actually a couple of really cool things. So when you hear the word piano sonata, you make some assumptions uh, as, a, as a musician. Three movements, yes, that we have. We have three movements in this sonata. They're supposed to go fast tempo, slow t- tempo, fast tempo. That's not how this goes. This goes slow tempo, medium tempo, fast. Um, so the slow movement is first, which is unusual. Also, the slow movement, the first movement, is not in the form that it's supposed to be in. And that's arguable to a certain extent. We're not going to get into that. But generally speaking, this is really unlike the way a first movement of a sonata is supposed to go. So he broke a lot of rules, quote-unquote, which was something he did often, especially with his piano sonatas. So it's super cool. Um, so that's that first movement, slow. Everybody recognizes it. 
to me, the heart of this sonata is the second movement. It's this two and a half minute, barely, gem of a, of a, of a scherzo, which is a faster movement in three. So uh, let's listen to it. It's beautiful. Yeah. And is that customary that the second movement is in 3-4 time? I forget. Often in a concerto, sonata, symphony, you'll have a 3-4 movement. It doesn't have to be, but... And who is this badass playing this? Because I looked this dude up and I was like, I want you as my, like third father my yeah. second father is a winemaker <laughs> scott Scholl. my third father i would like to have as this guy richard good he's yeah. a pianist and he's phenomenal and he has recorded a, the whole cycle of beethoven piano sonatas there are 32 of them <laughs> <laughs> and okay. uh, it's you i'm know, gonna mic drop and just walk away yeah. <laughs> come on i mean there are a lot of sets out there of pianists who have have done this so and everybody kind of has their favorite i really do love the uh richard good set so richard good g-o-o-d-e richard good um and yeah just playing a little bit of moonlight sonata do you want to hear a little bit of the third movement I, before we go back 100 percent. yeah so the third movement goes back to this broodiness of the first first movement so Ooh, can th- i talk about broody for a second please when I taste the 2017, I have the 2018 in my glass. When I think of the 2017, what's fascinating difference between these two is if I were to make them like hyper magnified, the 2017 being riper and it has like more aromatics. If I were to go to Germany, I'd be like Rheingau, like a little richer, a little bit more weight in the mid palate, mm. slightly less acidity. A lot of some sandstone soils there for sure and Wurtenberg and whatever. And then 2018, less alcohol, more mineral, more acid. I mean, not by much, but now we're in the Mosul or we're in like the middle Mosul. We're like, we're we're more in slate country, but not in the aromatics, just like what it can, Mm. raciness. Okay. And Rheingau sometimes, even though it's anything but brutish. You said that, and I was like, let's just compare these, even though yeah. I don't like to compare them because they're all California all day. You know, just people like to put things in boxes. Oh, yeah. So for Those are for my German friends. Okay, keep going. <laughs> <laughs> keep going. Keep going. So the, the final movement is fast, agitated, aggressive, and uh, kind of explosive, lots of loud dynamics and some really abrupt dynamic changes. Beethoven was really into that. And around 1800, he's already kind of starting to lose his hearing. So this is a this is a factor too that you kind of take into when you start to listen to how his music changes over time and how mm-hmm. he uses dynamics and things. So this this final movement it's called Presto Agitato, and so fast tempo and in an agitated state, and that's exactly what you hear in this. This movement is in the quote unquote proper form that you would find either as a first movement, sometimes as a last movement. But even then, that's a whole other conversation. So here we go. Let's listen to a little bit of this last movement of the Moonlight Sonata, which is very different than the first movement. (laughs) 
It does have its moments of calm, but they are fleeting. Even though earlier I said that this is in the proper form, he still manipulates it to a degree that's not common, which just another trademark of Beethoven, doing For, things in an unusual way. How does this happen in someone's head? I, I mean, I could, I don't know. He's, he's <laughs> no amazing. answer, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my so, gosh. anyway, there you go. Ugh. The Moonlight Sonata. You I'm thought so you knew. You cho- uh, yeah, you thought you knew. Moonlight yep. Sonata, the you know the the first movement everybody's heard of. They they may not even know it's called the Moonlight Sonata, or yeah. at least that that's the nickname. Right. Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. One thing I wanted to mention about Sturm and Riesling in California when it's done right is that when we have someone like Sturm who's making vintage in and vintage out really good quality wine, what will be interesting is to go back in their library. 10 years down the line or 20 years down the line and taste to see how complex these wines still are and how well they can age because I'm tasting this right now and I'm thinking this is has every bit as much, I don't want to say complexity, but possibility that certain producers I really love from the Rheingau have or from the Rheinhessen, which is more akin to this this kind of style of Riesling in a dry style. So it's great to taste that this area has this much going for it. Do you have any questions about Riesling? Well, one of the things I asked you earlier, which demonstrates how much I have to learn about the wine world, is how California is able to call it Riesling. And you're like, well, that's because Riesling is a grape, dude. No, you weren't (laughs) like that at all, though. You were super nice about it. But I just thought that might be a fun fact for you to talk about because... Because, I mean, I literally thought Riesling Germany, so therefore it must be protected, protected but it's just not what it's like. And what I told Emily was, um, besides the fact that it's a grape dude um, (laughs) and not a protected region, I said, you know, like Champagne is a protected name, Port is a protected name, some places can go, they cannot play by the rules because they're grandfathered, but they are a delimited place of origin, and so they have the use of that name, whereas Riesling is a grape that is everybody can plant it, like Cabernet. And every state and county in the country, an AVA, American Viticultural Area, so hence here, Santa Barbara County, if they say Riesling on the label, I believe it is in a in a smaller AVA. I want to say it's 85%, and in a county it's 75% that it has to be Riesling, and they could just dump a bunch of Chardonnay in here and stretch it. Granted, Ryan Sturm hasn't done that. Right. But if you see Riesling on a bottle of Robert yeah. Mondavi, something like that, it could yeah. be, it's a lot of Riesling, but there yeah. could be 25 to 15% of something else. Okay. Okay. That's why. So, you know, Riesling always has a screw top. No. Not always. No. Okay. Talk to me about that. People have decided to use screw caps, as they're called, in order to thwart cork taint, having your wine tainted by cork or cork byproduct, cork rinsing, 
It, they say that about 10% of wines are have that taint hmm. that have been corked. Sturm is using screw caps because, you know, even though they know, obviously Ryan Sturm knows well that Rieslings can age a great Riesling 100 plus years, they know that most people are going to buy this and drink it straight away. And there are people in Germany that use screw caps because they know that their Rieslings are going to be consumed right away. They don't need to that minute amount of oxygen that a cork would provide for a wine to become age-worthy, you know, just we all need oxygen, we all need a change of scene from time to time, and that's what oxygen allows for growth. And so, yes, this could age, but it's going to age so slowly because it's been under screw cap. I mean, this can't, oxygen really can't get in here. I mean, okay. it's such a low amount, and so that's that's why it's under screw cap. <laughs> One more question. Rieslings are bubbly sometimes. Aren't they ever bubbly? Do you mean like full-on sparkling or do you mean like just like that you were alluding to a hint of spritz? Do you, are you meaning like sparkling? Not sparkling, sparkling, but don't they have a little bit of skip in their step? Um, yes. I will rewind and answer my own question to you. Yes, there are sparkling, even German Rieslings, California Rieslings, and they can be blasphemously delicious. They can kind of get expensive. In terms of the spritz, Sometimes wines, when they're bottled, they can re-ferment in the bottle the smallest amount, and that gives us this like illusion of it's called um, undissolved CO2, and you literally get the smallest amount of carbonation on the palate that isn't really carbonation that can likely be measured. We don't have an atmosphere of pressure or a bar of pressure, which I would like to be able to tell you how many pounds of pressure per square inch that is right now, but I can't remember. That's okay. But it's this infinitesimal amount that really a lot of times that can be confused also with acidity. Okay. So it, it depends on how much sugar, how much ripeness the wine has been bottled with. And that can be... Cabernet Franc red wine from the Loire Valley, you know, wow, it can be okay. bottled with a certain amount of, it's, it's, it's dry. Yeah. But yeasts are still, no, they haven't filtered and they haven't sulfured. So you get this like prickle and it, that's the, the word for it is like prickle, prickly. Okay. It's like kind of prickly. It's kind of spritzy. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're like, well, how spritzy? Yeah. What bar are we at now? Are we at like 0.08 bars? <laughs> like what are we, but uh, what do you want in your glass for our cheers? I've still, I've still got a little bit of this. Huh. The okay. 2018. All right, I'll 2017. Okay. I just want to point out, so we have two bottles here that we've literally, we haven't cashed a glass of the 2017. And the 2018, no. we have like a glass and a half gone. What's, um, well, a uh, Jill glass and a half, which is like three ounce glasses. What's amazing is the 2017 is a little richer. Yes. It's a little riper. A lot of times, you know, we have to turn off the air conditioning when we're in the booth so that you all don't hear a hum below our voices. And then you think things are, instead of C-sharp minor, it's like in C-flat major or something, <laughs> whatever. Um, that it's incredible that you we gravitate towards less alcohol and more acidity when mm -hmm. things are hot. It's fascinating. Yes, like yes. We're not like, let's tank this 2017, <laughs> which I'm going to right now because I'm like, let's, let's out of comfort zone. Let's just do that. Love it. To scores and pours. To, to Ryan Sturm. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode and support us financially at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. We're on Instagram at scoresandpours, and if we ever figure out Reddit, you can check out updates there too. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by buying their music. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Incorporated. Mm-hmm.